Hello, it's Bernard Nomberg. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast, Nomberg Law Live. Today is our initial podcast episode. Jeff Perlman, author, best-selling author, who most recently wrote the definitive book on the USFL. Thank you for giving us some listen. If you've got any questions or comments, please leave them for us. We hope that you'll stick with us. Thank you for attending and listening to Nomberg Law Live. morning. This is Bernard Nomberg. We're here with another episode of Nomberg Law Live, and I've got one of my, my favorite writers on, on the phone and, and live with me, Jeff Perlman out in Southern California. Good morning, Jeff. How's it going? It's, I'm doing well. Hope your weather's better than it is in, in Alabama right now. Actually, it's raining, but um, it's been raining the last few days, but we need the rain so bad out here that it's actually, mm-hmm. it's a, it, you know, it's a good thing. So. Well, I can assure you, we, we don't need the rain, so I'm happy to share it with you. Thank um, you. For those, for those of you who don't know Jeff, he is a New York Times bestselling author. He writes all kind of great sports books. He shares the same hometown, I wonder if he knows this, as Fonzie, Sour Shoes from the Howard Stern fame, Joe Torrey, and Dave Fleming. I do. And In fact, Dave, well, Dave Fleming pitched for the Seattle Mariners, and Dave Fleming grew up the street from me. And um, so, you know, I ended up being a Seattle Mariners fan for two reasons. My favorite player as a kid was Ken Griffey Sr., and his son obviously was drafted by the Mariners. And then Dave up the street wound up with the Mariners. So that was my my destiny in life. Well, I, I recently read a great article you wrote about Dave Fleming, and I wanted to, to kind of jump in in the contrast between the Dave Flemings of the world. He's about my age. He went to, as you know, he went to Georgia. We, we were, uh, I went to Vanderbilt. We came out of school about the same time, and I'm a big college baseball fan. So I knew who he was in college following SEC baseball. And he was on such a great team with Derek Lilliquist and some others who went on to the pros. But compare what he, I don't know what he's doing now, but your article was several years ago where he went back to school, got finished his degrees, and became a school teacher, and that's what he loved to do. It's such a contrast, his experience, versus these prima donnas, which most of the sports world sees as, as athletes. So I bet he was a, a bit of a refreshing person to, to know personally as well as to, to write about. Well, you know, I would say the vast, vast, vast majority of athletes, if you really think about it, the vast majority of athletes, when they retire, they sort of just go back into the working world, you know, because the the majority of leagues are made up, you know, the um, Peyton Mannings and Antonio Browns and those are the those are the anomalies. The vast majority of guys are the offensive linemen and the backup quarterbacks and, you know, guys like Dave Fleming, who as soon as they they're signing autographs until the day they retire and as soon as they retire, they fade back into the world. Dave was always a really nice guy. He's a teacher in, in Connecticut. And, you know, the vast, most athletes are not prima donnas. Most athletes are, are maybe they're prima donnas for the four or five years of pros to a, a certain degree, but then it's over. And, you know, the majority are not going into broadcast and they're not following a Michael Strahan path. The majority are wind up sitting next to you and me doing whatever jobs we do. And every once in a while, 
uh, cross-country runners from the University of Delaware become best-selling writers as well. Not that often. <laughs> or actually, it's not that hard, actually. Yeah. It's harder to be a major, a major league pitcher than it is to be a writer, I assure you. Well, I think that, that probably one would say that, that they're equally as difficult and equally as, as hard to, to master the skill. You seem to write, if not every day, just about every day. I know you put out a daily blog. You also have the Two Writers Sling and Yang podcast, which I truly, truly enjoy listening. So thank you for doing all of, of that oh, heavy you. lifting. Uh, I, I just wonder, how do you find your guests? Where, where do you find these, these people? They're just generally the writers who I really enjoy. So the podcast is an hour, a 45-minute discussion about writing. And a lot of times it's just writers I really like. And, and I feel like, unlike sort of major league baseball players, we don't, writers don't get to talk about what they do that often. We're not asked a million times a day what it's like to be a writer and sort of what inspires you. So when someone comes along and says, you want to talk writing for an hour, most people decide to do it. So it's not very hard to find guests who want to talk about writing. <laughs> Well, I had the pleasure of interviewing Lars Anderson a few weeks ago. Of course, I know you know oh. him. We're colleagues mm -hmm. for, for a while. And there's a young fella from Birmingham, from my hometown, named Alec Lewis. And I don't know if Alec has made it across your, your desk yet, but he is from the University of Missouri. He's being mentored by Lars, and he, now he's starting to write for the Kansas City Star. He reports on all the Missouri sports. But I also interviewed him, and the enthusiasm that I hear out of his voice, I think if you get to listen to him, is probably refreshing because I wonder if your your profession is somewhat of a dying art these days. Uh, do you have any any thoughts on that? I mean, it's harder than it's ever been. People are not, I always, say, I, I always think of it this way. I mean, you and I, you know, both remember, because it wasn't that long ago, you would fly in a, say you take a flight, right? You take a flight from Birmingham to whatever, Chicago. You get off the plane, and what are the flight attendants cleaning up? Newspapers in every seat. Remember, or magazines. There'd be old people magazines. There'd be newspapers all over the place. Now the plane is, there's zero, maybe one. You know, um, even books. You fly in a plane, you used to see tons of people reading books, holding books. Now you still see books, but not to the same degree. Um, people just don't read as much. It's not merely a, a, a matter of digital versus print. People just don't read as much. So that's a little terrifying. And, and I do feel like, you know, social media has made us sort of lazy readers as well, where instead of reading a book or reading an in-depth article in the Times or the Wall Street Journal, we'll get our little, you know, we'll get our filth from the different tweets. But generally, we're receiving news and information in small little bites. So it is a lot. I started my career out of college at the National Tennessean. There were a gazillion newspapers thriving at the time. I knew I was going to get a job somewhere at some newspaper. Now, if I'm, you know, Alec coming out of college, it's a lot harder. Um, I still have the same exact enthusiasm for writing, for reporting. I love it. It's a passion of mine, but it's definitely harder than it used to be. Well, I, I know that the just from what I read, I'm a subscriber to The Athletic. And I love reading, I guess they're called long form articles that are in depth. I know you contribute to it as, as well as many other fine writers around the country, but you don't get that anywhere. Even in Sports Illustrated, which is now only about twice a month, I think, you just don't get the content that you used to. And I really miss that. I, I do too. And even, even The Athletic, um, to be totally honest and blunt, like 
I don't think they want that many of those. I think, see, the thing that stinks, I always say this to people, that really bums me out about it all. If I were running The Athletic or I were running ESPN.com or Bleacher Report, I'm not sure if I would see the bang for the buck either. If you're looking at it strictly from a business standpoint, if someone's going to, if 10 million people are going to take the time to watch a 30-second video clip of Jimmy Butler, you know, dunking over whoever, Mm -hmm. uh, and only a quarter of that, if even, are going to read 4,000 words by Lars Anderson on a high school quarterback who, you know, who died, just as an example. Well, it's hard to tell the bean counters. We need to send this guy to wherever. We need to get him a hotel. We need to get him a car. We need to put him up for a couple of days. He's going to chase down this story. Blah, blah. Like, it is hard. And, and the thing that makes me sad, it's almost hard to believe now. When I was, I was at Sports Illustrated from 1996 to 03, and they would send you places to write long stories strictly because they wanted great stories. That was it. Is it a great story? Yes, it's a great story. But that's going to be good for a magazine. Do that story. Take the time you need. Fly where you have to go. It's almost um, impossible to explain that to a 24-year-old journalist, uh, mm-hmm. that it was unlimited access, unlimited uh, finances, resources. Just go for it. Write, write, write. Make it long. Make it 10,000 words. If it's a great story, make it 10,000 words, and we'll run it in print. I mean, those are, it makes me sad, but those days are, if they're not gone, they're numbered. I want to say maybe it was AI that you were assigned to go chase down in multiple cities and just got so frustrated with it. And then finally, I, I think he may have given you some time. Uh, am, am I remembering that correctly? You may have mentioned it on your podcast a few months ago. Yeah, it was an Iverson story I did for Sports Illustrated years ago when he was still great. And I followed him around and he kept blowing me off. And I'd wind up in a different city in a different city. And the magazine was never like, you know, I would call my editor and say, should I? This is kind of ridiculous. No, keep going. I remember when I was covering baseball for Sports Illustrated and Jason Giambi was a free He was about to uh, wrap his last year in Oakland and he's going to become a free agent. And my editor had a hunch, nothing more than a hunch, that Jason Giambi was about to sign. So he said, you know what, stay out in Oakland for a few more days and, and just hang tight and see what you find. Well, hang out in Oakland for a few more days, spent paying 250 a night for a hotel. And then extending my rental car, expend, and then expensing my food. And it was just the whim of an editor that maybe this will happen. I mean, it's, you know, it kind of breaks my heart. Yeah, it breaks my heart. I feel like I feel like I came along at a good time where I still was able to sort of enjoy. When I got, this is no joke, when I got to Sports Illustrated, I got there in late 1996. Earlier that year, the Summer Olympics were in Atlanta. To reward the staff for a job well done, Sports Illustrated sent everybody, and when I say everybody, editors, fact checkers, secretaries, everyone, to Atlanta for a three-day weekend, all expenses paid, to enjoy the Olympics. Yep. Wow. Well, that's, I guess, chasing an AI around the country, a Giambi, that's the 20-something-year-old Jeff, when your profession was a lot different, now with social media. And we got a great question from an attorney in your area, in Dana Point or Dana Hills, Mitch Jackson who you have something in common with. Mitch is a Rotarian with Sam Darnard's grandfather, who I know you're going to be interviewing Sam later today. And if you would, I'll come back to my question in a second. Tell me, what is uh, the interview going to be? How can we watch that or or listen in? I don't even know. So it um, basically I got hired to, uh, someone said to me, hey, you're taking freelance work? And I was thinking, not really, but what do you got? He said, do you want to, We'll pay you 350 bucks to interview um, 
Sam Darnold for an hour at a, at a sock store in Irvine. And I said, and I, I'd done a Bleacher Report story on Sam about a year ago, and he was great. Uh, and I grew up a Jets fan. I don't really care anymore. If I grew up a Jets fan, he's quarterback for the Jets. So I said, sure. So I don't even know. I, you know, maybe I'll try streaming it on my, uh, maybe I'll try periscoping it on Twitter. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's cool. My kid's missing basketball to come watch it. It'll be fun. That'll be fun. But let me let me get back to Mitch's question. And you just were, were hitting on that, the 20-something-year-old Jeff in the mid-90s versus the now mid-40s Jeff in 2019. How is it that your profession has changed with the advent of live video and social media? All right, so I remember when I was at Sports Illustrated, I was at Sports Illustrated, and I was at spring training with the Mets. And I saw a Newsday reporter with a camera with a video camera. And I was like, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, the, they wanted us to put video on the website of us talking to the players. And I thought, God, that sucks. That is so demeaning. Who wants to do that? And now here we are. I mean, everything is digital. Every, now, on the one hand, I'll say this. It's made promoting a book a million times more easy. A million. It truly, I mean, when my first book came out, it was 2003, it was about the 86 Mets. And what you would hope for is maybe the New York Daily News does a story or, you know, the Tampa Tribune does a story and someone runs a review. Nowadays, thanks to Twitter, thanks to Facebook, thanks to Snapchat, uh, thanks to multiple platforms, you really are your own publicist. And the chances to get word out are just a million times more. So that's been great. Um, but I would say, you know, I entered this profession to be a writer. Like, that's why I became a sports writer. I entered to become a writer, not to not to tweet, not to become a, you know, a video personality, any of that stuff. But in order to save your own career and to keep your own career going, especially when you're you write books and you're unaffiliated like I am and you don't have the platform of an ESPN.com, you really have to sort of be at it nonstop and develop your own brand. Um, so that's why the website exists, why the podcast exists why I'm on Twitter so often. It's, it's sort of developing your own brand. And that's really changed. And I just want to tell your listener, I am at JC Beans quite regularly in Dana Point. So feel free. I'll buy him a coffee if he taps me on the shoulder. Well, that, that's where I was going. You, you've, you've often talked about one of your favorite places to write is in a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's the vibe or the feel of just being there. You're awake. You're not at home. Is that something you've developed over time? Or has that always been a, a, a preferred choice for you to get your, your mojo going? You know, there's something, um, it sounds corny, but there's almost something romantic about sitting in a corner of somewhere and conversations going around and, you know, you're kind of just sitting there and you're the writer sitting in the, it reminds me of, you know, Hemingway sitting in a bar getting drunk writing. Um, I'm no Hemingway, but, but you know, I, re I really like that. I also like the illusion of social interaction. You know, at home, you're alone with the refrigerator and the dog. When you're in a coffee shop, you, you get to know the baristas and they get to know you and Sometimes they give you a free drink and, hey, how's it going? What's going on with you? How's your boyfriend? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like, mm -hmm. uh, this is not a natural profession for me um, in that I'm a pretty social person and writing is kind of an isolated person's gig. So uh, working at coffee shops kind of takes away the isolation. No, I, th I think it's a, a brilliant place to, to be if you could concentrate. I don't know if you wear earphones or, or how you block yeah, out the, the white noise, so to speak. Um, but going back to you were talking about the evolution of social media and live video, and it makes it a lot easier, I guess, if you will, to get on platforms and get your word out. But it also sets you up for the criticism more easily. 
Yes. And, and, and I know that you banter back and forth through Twitter. I follow you there. But I want to go to the Walter Payton book. And I, I know that Coach Ditka didn't have very nice things to say. And, and the guys on the sports radio back in yeah. 2011. Um, but I guess my question to you is, I know you've written about living uh, icons, Favre, Clemens, etc., but you've also written about the deceased, Walter Payton. Is it easier or more difficult to write about someone who's no longer living versus someone who won't speak to you for their book, for example? All right, so a friend of mine, a colleague of mine in Sports Illustrated named John Wertheim, he once said to me when I'm writing about someone and they don't speak to me, and he did say, it sounds callous, it's not that way, it's a professional way of looking at it. You have to think of it like they're deceased, like they're not involved and you just have to go on and continue to write. I, um, I, again, this sounds callous, but I don't mean in that way. The thing that makes it easier when someone is gone is you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, there's a definitive end to Walter Payton's life. And writing about the end of a life is really sort of a fascinating and oftentimes touching and heartbreaking and emotional, which all lends itself to a, a pretty good book, at least section of a book. Um, with Brett Favre, just as an example, it was a lot of, um, how do I end this? How do I end this? Is it do am I am I finding out what he did last week and ending with that? Do I end it with his last season with Minnesota? Do I, you know? So, I I found Walter Payne's the only book I've written about someone who who was gone, and I did find wrapping his life. Uh, two things: number one, it really completed the process for me, and number two, I found it horribly, terribly uh, sad and emotional. Um, you know, Mike Dick is saying he would spit on me or these fools on, on social media posting a YouTube clip of them burning my book, which they probably hadn't even read. Those things were, were, were not fun. But the, I, mean, I really mean this, like you would live a book for two years and you really dive into someone's life. So writing about Walter Payton at the end in his last few days and dying and his family around him at the end was crushing, was a just really crushing experience. I think most writers you talk to, write about people who die. I know I talked to David Marinus who wrote the Roberto Clemente biography and write, he said writing about Roberto Clemente's final day and dying in the plane crash was, you know, devastating to him. And that's how I felt about Walter Payton the same exact way. It, no, you, you, in that, in the Payton book, which I, I read uh, almost nonstop, but it, you showed how incredible of an athlete and he came across, came through at such a, a unique time in, in football and in sports and the talent that he was and the awesomeness that he was on the field. But he was just a human being like all the rest of us and had good and bad. And I guess when people read about their sports heroes, I guess that, that the reason why people criticized it is they didn't want to learn or they, they want to ignore, not know about the fact that he had faults like everybody else. Maybe that takes him down a peg or two. Has that been part of your experience, uh, getting that the negative feedback, if you will? Yeah, definitely. And um, I actually understand it. It's not that I never understood it. Um, there was a book called Never Die Easy that was written. Uh, it was Walter Payton wrote it, wrote it, you know, sort of spoke to Don Yeager, a writer actually from Alabama about it. And um, and that was a very, you know, that glossed over a lot of things. And it was a very, very uplifting and positive. And I feel like if you... If you just want to love Walter Payton for who he was, and that's fine, that's that completely fine. That's an excellent book. But I do feel 
and maybe it's whatever, maybe it's, it's comes off as arrogant or something, but I feel like I, you're writing a history. You're trying to write a history. And that's what a biography is. Whether you're writing about Malcolm X or John F. Kennedy or Donald Trump or Hillary, like you're writing a definitive biography is supposed to be a definitive, all encompassing history of that person's life. So that involves warts and all. And it doesn't mean being gratuitous and looking for stuff that didn't really matter. But, you know, as I've always said, you, you're writing a biography of Walter Payton. You find out he had an out of wedlock son who he took financial care of, but had no emotional dealings with. And the kid lived a couple miles away. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you don't write about that. Well, you find out Walter Payton wasn't living with his wife for much of their marriage. I don't know how you don't write about that if you're writing a definitive biography. So it sucks. It's not always fun. You ask yourself why you're doing it. It's sometimes it's definitely hard to justify, but it's sort of the job you signed up for. Absolutely. And and I applaud the efforts for pushing through and doing a book like that, because I'm sure that I'm sure it wasn't easy. Just like I know that you dive into all of the books that you do. You interview hundreds of people. How many did you interview for the, the USFL book, which we'll get to in a minute? It was about 430, I always say between four and 450, somewhere around there. How many total USFL players were there? In yeah, the I know. Who'd you I pretty much got them all. I did. There were, there were a, thousand, a couple of thousand, so it wasn't. But I, uh, I basically was like, I'm just going to call everyone. I'm just going through this book. I'm calling everyone. If the person doesn't answer, I'm just moving on to the next person because I only had a year to do it, so it was quick. Well, what what's my Birmingham Stallions uh, new era style jacket worth these days? Can I get anything for it? <laughs> Probably only for me. <laughs> it's great. It is funny. People are like. I'm doing the interview and the interviews for the book, and people will be like, "So why are people so fascinated by these?" I'm honest, I was like, "I think they are." I think part of my job is to convince them it's worth being fascinated about, fascinated about, because I don't think I don't think there's an, an immense craving across America or immense nostalgia for the USFL. It's almost like I had to convince them why there should be uh, nostalgia for the USFL. So you may be able to get five bucks on eBay. That's about it. Well, Jeff, Sorry. being in Alabama, you know, we don't have any professional sports other than the Alabama Crimson Tide. And historically, we've never had NBA, NFL, or, or Major League Baseball. We just have minor leagues, and we have some semi-pro leagues. But when the USFL came through, and I was in high school at the time, that seemed at that time the most legitimate shot to make it maybe into the NFL. And as a high school kid, I didn't care about that. I just cared about seeing Herschel Walker or Doug Flutie or Cliff Stout and those guys play. Yeah. And to be able to stand at the old gray lady Legion Field was such a treat because you could stand literally within feet or yards of those guys warming up and they'd wave to you. The crowds weren't that big. And it was such a unique time and you really captured it so beautifully. Some of these stories, some of which I don't know if you necessarily want to repeat here, but the, the Greg Field story is just one of the best. Uh, oh, thanks. <laughs> take, take us for just a minute. And for those of you who don't know, let me reset for just a second, Jeff. This is Bernard Nomberg, Nomberg Law Live. We come to you every Tuesday. I've got best-selling author Jeff Perlman, who's very early out on the West Coast. He's there uh, giving us some time. We've got several people watching online. We've got Eddie in New York, Marianne in Alabama, Mitch in California. Uh, I've got a, a question or two that I'll get to you that are offline, Jeff. But I want to take to your most recent book, the book that came out in September about the USFL. It is definitely the definitive book. There's been a few others, but none of which compare. You interviewed over 400 people and the stories. You probably could have written an 800-page book with the amount of stories that you gathered. Um, I, I even remember you talking about you taking your son to go track down 
uh, a, a, a player who was very difficult to find. Share with us a little bit of your, your memories and things that you want to talk, talk to us about about that book. Well, so I, like you, I loved the USFL as a kid. I'm a little younger than you, but not that much. And I loved the USFL as a kid. And I remember being a kid, my family, I grew up in New York, and my family would not, um, wouldn't subscribe to Sports Illustrated. It was kind of expensive, but I would get Sport Magazine. And I would go to the library, the Mailpack Public Library, to read SI. And I remember Herschel Walker on the cover, hitting pay dirt is a headline, him in a general's uniform. And then opening up the magazine and seeing the 12 helmets from the first year. And the helmets were just awesome. I mean, they were just awesome. You remember them? They were great. The Stallions had a great helmet. And I was just blown away. So I'd always wanted to write this book. I was always told nobody wants a USFL book. But I was just... So the story that you're alluding to, and it's one of the best... This is one of those stories I could tell a million times now, so I'm totally... Greg Fields, I was interviewing a guy out here in California named Tom Ramsey, who had been the quarterback of the LA Express. And he's like, you need to find big paper. Big paper? Greg Fields, find Greg Fields. He was a defensive lineman. He was crazy. You needed to find him. All right. So it turns out Greg Fields was this guy. He played... He went to Grambling. Then he played a year for the Baltimore Colts in 79. And his nickname was Big Paper. Because he was a lucky guy. And Barry Krause, out of the University of Alabama, in fact, had been their first-round pick that year. Barry Krause was the highest-paid player. And one day, Greg Fields in the locker room, as Barry Krause is walking by, and Fields goes, ah, the big paper boy. And Barry Krause loves it. He goes, big paper, big paper. And he starts calling Fields, big paper. Well, Fields lasts a year in Baltimore. He goes to uh, – and he became known. He would cash his paycheck in singles and walk around with dollar bills because he, he liked how it made him look. So he uh, – he plays here in Baltimore, goes to Atlanta, gets cut by the Falcons in training camp, refuses to leave. It's like, I'm not leaving. They have to get an armed police officer to escort him out of the dorm room. So he's a little bonkers. That ends it for him. He goes to the U.S. and he's signed by the LA Express, plays the 83 season. 1984, John Hadle, uh, former AFL quarterback, is a coach of the Express. He decides he's going to cut Greg Fields. Uh, his assistant coaches are like, Coach, you got you got to be careful. This guy's a little crazy. In. Greg Fields, he's about six, I think he was six, six, two eighty around there. Big guy. Sits across from Hadel. Hadel's like, Greg, you know, we appreciate your efforts, but, and Fields just reaches back and punches him in the face. You mother, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to, blah, 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 blah. Being pulled out of the office. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Screaming at him. Starts calling it death threats to the express, to the defensive uh, coordinator and to John Hadel. And he keeps a gun in the back of his car and he starts showing up at practices, just staring, standing at the fence and staring at the coach. Well, the Express decide they're gonna hire this guy, Nelson Mercado, who was known as a local LA bodyguard, security guard, but was working at the time as Liberace's bodyguard in Vegas. <laughs> they hire him away from Liberace. Nelson Mercado comes. He can't I interviewed Nelson for the book. He can't believe what he's seeing. This guy's literally driving up at, at, at practices, coming to games, calling in death threats. He's got a gun in the back of his car. So Nelson Mercado is following him around. That's his job. Follow Greg Fields around. Make sure he doesn't do anything. We don't want to make a big deal of it with the police, blah, blah, blah. But so one day, because this is the USFL, everyone in the league knows Greg Fields is crazy. Everyone knows his story in the league. They say, however, the San Antonio Gunslingers need defensive line help. So they sign Greg Fields as a free agent. And Fields comes down to San Antonio, and he's greeted by all the coaches wearing helmets and pads with an article behind them about Fields punching his coach. 
Felix cracks up. Toward the end of the 85 season, uh, Clint Mangus, owner of the San Antonio Gunslingers, runs out of money or says he runs out of money, stops paying players. One day, Greg Fields follows him home with a baseball bat in the back of his car. Uh, the owner gets out. He lives in this huge mansion. Greg Fields gets out. Greg Fields has the bat. Greg, what are you doing here? Listen, I see where you live. I know you have money. I want to get paid. The owner walks into his house, comes back out with $10,000 in cash. Says, are we good? It's like, we're good. Drives off. All right. Greg Fields is nowhere to be found. I talked to different guys from the Express, different guys from Grambling. Doug Williams, who was a quarterback at Grambling. Nobody knows where he is. So I, uh, but I find two sort of addresses, past addresses. And they're in San Francisco. So I decide me and my then nine-year-old son are going to take a road trip to find Greg Fields. <laughs> I'm a good dad, I swear. I'm really involved. I don't know what I was thinking. We drive up to San Francisco. We stay in a hotel. I'm like, all right, let's uh, let's do it. Let's let's take a walk. We're walking through San Francisco. We get to this really kind of seedy area. It's day, but we walk past a mental hospital under a bridge where it smells like piss, through fields with bottles, and we finally get to Greg Fields' house, and there's a lockbox in the door. Crap. I go to a second address. This time I went at night. I left Emmett with a friend, my son in it. Um, it's in the projects, but kind of nice looking projects. Not not nothing bad. Knock on the second floor door. Greg Fields is uh, Greg. That's my dog scratching the carpet. Hey, stop. Um, Greg Fields is uh, there. She is. Greg Fields is um, sister answers the door. I'm like, oh my god, my name's Jeff Burrow. Blah 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 blah. And she says, uh, I don't. Greg doesn't live here, but I can give him your. Uh, I can give you your phone number. Well, 20 minutes later, I get a call from Greg Fields, and I say, oh, my God, Greg, my name is Jeff Perlman, blah, blah, blah. No one has ever been happier to talk to you before, I promise you. <laughs> Fast forward, the next day, me, my nine-year-old son, Greg Fields, eating uh, Cold Stone Creamery in a shopping mall in Sacramento. The happiest, well, one of the happiest moments of my life. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I hope he shared a little bit with you. Uh, he did. Some of and I just want to say... I do want to say, like, when you talk about the young guy coming out of Missouri, uh, and when I talk about, like, my love of journalism, like, that's it. Like, for all the hardships and the difficulties and closing newspapers and tweets that, you know, replace articles, like, those moments, when I think about sort of my college roommates and what they wound up doing, you know, and my decision to go in this profession, the moment of finding Greg Fields, I've never done cocaine or whatever, but... It's got to be like a million jolts of the best drug. It is just euphoria times a thousand, and I live for those moments. We, we should all find a profession we enjoy that that much. And we're getting close to the end. And, Jeff, I appreciate your time. I've just got a couple of things. We've got an offline question or two. Uh, Stephen in Atlanta wants to know, what are you working on these days, and when can we expect your next your next book? I'm doing a, I'm doing a book about the uh, Lakers of the Shaq, Kobe, Phil Jackson era. So 96 oh, wow. before. Yeah, and it's supposed to come out in 2020. Very good, very good. Uh, you recently you recently interviewed Allie or Haley Roberts out of Springdale, Arkansas. You remember that? Of course. And and it it when I listened to it a few weeks ago, it just seemed like this this I'm not even going to call her a kid, a young woman had such guts to be able to do what they've done. And as you're going through that interview with her. Did it bring you back to a time when you were first starting out? Did it did it resonate with you? What yeah, were you, so Hallie what were you thinking? A, she's a high school senior, and she writes for a high school news. She's the editor of a high school newspaper, and um, 
they ran and they did an investigative piece about kids from their school transferring to another school to play sports, another school in the district. And the school district ordered them to take the story down. And she fought. She fought and she won. Um, and yeah, I mean, she's badass, to be blunt. And, and I remember being a high school kid and being called into the athletic director's office and being told, I did, a, it's not even remotely on the same scale, but I did a report card of all the players on the basketball team at the end of the season and gave them each a grade. And maybe that was, you know, maybe it probably wasn't the best case. I was probably overly critical, but I was a high school kid finding his voice. And I remember the athletic director just reaming me out. And I remember another time running a critical piece about the baseball coach and players didn't want to play for him. And the, athletic, the baseball coach reaming me out. And as I said to Hallie, and as I say here, like, you learn to do this by trial and by error and by taking chances and by taking shots and by sometimes calling people out and by facing criticism and by people telling you you shouldn't write that. You have to mention it or that's wrong or you're going to rip. Like, what she did was, to me, a beautiful and gutsy sort of act. So, I mean, she's way better. She's way more advanced than I was at that age. You know, that 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 thoughts that you just shared with us, it kind of reminds me in closing uh, of Teddy Roosevelt's famous speech, The Man in the Arena. And it's you can stand on the sidelines all you want and be a critic and be part of the peanut gallery and so forth. But if you're not in it, then then how can you say you've tried it or you've done it or you've attempted it? And that's what I'm, I'm hearing from you. Um, what what would be your if if I'm a, a 16 17 year old high school kid coming out and I want to go into journalism know, knowing what you've been through the last 20 plus years wh where am I going what am I concentrating on Well I say a few things number one getting a Twitter account is free getting a Facebook page is free you're more you right now this doesn't cost any money you could kick high school kid you could do this right right now now starting a website free start starting a podcast my, my podcast cost me zero dollars and zero cents to do every days to get involved that i have my podcast from hoops, like he's a really, really good basketball basketball website. Fourteen of them that they gave him one. Um, it is not. Jeff, can you hear me? Okay, we've got a very low uh, connection um, right now. Can you hear me? Okay? Um, I can actually. I can. Okay. All right. Now you're back. What I'm hearing you. What uh, what parts that I heard you say is. Start a Twitter account, start Facebook, start podcast. All of these things are free. You just got to start. You just got to be in the right. moment. You got to do these things. Yeah, because then when you get to college and you get out, you'll have the, all of a sudden you have all this material to show high uh, potential employers. And it's just it's harder than it ever was. There's no doubt. It's more competitive. So get ahead now. Start start going at it because it is a worthwhile profession, and there's a lot of joy to be had in journalism. Well, Jeff, this has been big fun for me. I, I hope that I haven't taken up too much of your time today. I thank you oh. for, for sharing your wisdom and your insight. And just please, for, at least for me, just keep writing. I, I love what you Thanks. write and I enjoy listening to your podcasts and stuff. And I wish you a, a great rest of your day. Guys, we're uh, gonna, thanks so much, Absolutely. We're going to sign off for now. This is another episode of Nomberg Law Live. We come to you every, every Tuesday at 10 o'clock 
Central, 8 a.m. Pacific. Hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Take care.